0: good morning, Salem Chapel. You guys can have a seat. It's good to be with you today. I'm Mark Duncan. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. If it's your first time at Salem, let me just say welcome to you. So thankful that you are here today. Although you are kind of coming in at the tail end, as Gray already mentioned, of a very long journey uh, through the book of John. Uh, But we're going to finish things up today. And so if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter number 21. Now, I don't know if you're like me But as you're reading through the book of John, it seemed kind of like last week would have been really like a great place for John to sort of like finish, you know, his gospel, right? Like leave on this amazing note, right? That Jesus has just been risen from the dead. He has been uh, with the disciples. They've gotten to touch his hands, to see the scars, and everything is like kind of come full circle. And you're kind of like, well, John, and even the statement that he made, that that great quoted there that verse at the end. That would have been a great place, right, to sort of like finish. What I love about what what we're going to look at today is I think it really hits many of us in the reality of where we live as we follow Jesus. Um, I liken it to kind of like the way in the Marvel movies where you get to the end of the movie, and then you watch like 20 minutes of credits, and then there's like one more scene at the end, right? And it's usually kind of like the next day after the major battle, this is what was happening. And that's the reality for these disciples as well. They're, they've just come off of a tremendous season. Honestly, a pretty stressful few weeks. If you think about how fast the events of Everything of the week of Holy Week leading up to the cross and leading the resurrection, everything changed very quickly. Very stressful time for them. And now it's, that part is, is over. It's, it's past the feast of the Passover, and they've gone back home. They've gone back home, and it's sort of like that realization, right? You know, now what, right? I can think of like moments like that in my life where I felt maybe similar to that. The one that first came to mind was like, like my, my college graduation, and when I get my, got my diploma, and I walked down that, that aisle, and I had that, that gown on, and we turned the tassels, and there was so much uh, ceremony and pomp and circumstances playing, and everyone's congratulating you and shaking hands, and then you go to bed, and then you wake up the next morning, and you're like, like, now what do I do, <laughs> right? Like, all of the, that time in my life was devoted to getting toward this particular moment, and now that moment has passed, and now I actually have to go out and like make something, I guess, of myself. You know, get a job, start a career. How do I even go about doing that? And I can't help but wonder if maybe there was a measure of that going on in the disciples' heart as we kind of approach going into chapter 21. So we're going to read... Uh, A few verses here in chapter 21 just to get us started. So if you just follow along with me, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now after this, after what? After the resurrection, after they've gotten back home, Jesus has revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. You know, I like Simon's approach to things. It's kind of like, all right, we're back home. Um, I'm not sure what to do. So maybe I'm the kind of guy that needs an activity. So you know what we're going to do? Let's go fishing. That seems familiar. That's what I know. Let's go fishing. And so they said to him, great, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And he said to them, children... Do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none but none of the disciples dared to ask him now, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we're going to stop there in the passage for now. And I think this is an interesting snapshot into what happened after all of the big events that the disciples went through into like what the everyday reality in many cases is for us as well as people that would say hey I'm trying to follow Jesus I'm trying to do what he would have me to do and like my day doesn't seem as like my life hasn't seemed like full of such big events as like the disciples right like they've they've witnessed amazing works that Jesus has done miracles they've seen the lame walk they've seen the blind be able to have their sight returned to them, they saw him be celebrated as he was walking into Jerusalem, and they saw him nailed to the cross, and they saw him arisen. But then you get a picture here of like, these are just ordinary people, ordinary people like you and me. Maybe after a big mountaintop kind of experience, if you will, the next day, their first solution to come up with is like, is not like, hey didn't Jesus say we should be about doing something? Like, they talked about this church thing. I think that we're supposed to like head that up. Like, what is that gonna look like? They're kind of like, you know what? We're gonna go fishing, (laughs) you know? And just get out on the boat and spend some time fishing. And the fact that Jesus comes to them in that moment, I believe is incredibly important. That's often where Jesus meets us as well. It's not in the big milestone moments. It's often in the moments between the moments. So why does John include this interaction with the disciples after he sort of landed things on a high note the week before? I think he wants, because Jesus is trying to get across to us through John's writing. He's trying to get across this. He's inviting you and me to continue to believe as he is continuing to work. He's inviting us to continue to believe as he is continuing to work. Let's make sure we understand what we mean by the word believe, okay? Because we can come across that with a very different perspective, depending on what day of the week it is, what circumstances are happening. Believe is not simply just like an intellectual understanding about what Jesus has said and what he wants to do. It's not just an intellectual exercise that I confirm or deny, But it's also not just a feeling that I get. You know, like a flutter where I'm like, yes, I believe today because I'm feeling it today. Like it's got to be something deeper rooted than that. So this is my definition of believe. Just as we're on the same page, it's not going to be on the screen. But to believe really is to live like Jesus has made a difference. It's really faith turns into belief when you start taking steps. Right, when it has an impact in the way that I live. That's what it means to, be, to believe. And so when we say that Jesus is inviting you to continue to believe as he continues to work. What he's inviting you to do is to express that and live it, right? To see a difference in the way that you live. And I find this interesting that he's choosing to highlight this and the disciples are doing a very normal kind of a thing. They're not doing an amazing like church leadership type of activity here. They're just fishing, They're just out there fishing, and Jesus uses that interaction to reveal a few things that he wants us to believe. What I believe he wants us to believe about him in every season of our life. And this is the first one. He wants us to believe that Jesus will continue to meet me in the miraculous and in the mundane. In the miraculous and in the mundane. You know what's really interesting about this story, if you go back and look through it in the way that Jesus described it. Does this this sound familiar to you, this whole interaction with the nets and the boat and the fish? It should. It definitely sounded familiar to the disciples. Why? Because this happened at the beginning of their ministry, right? When Jesus first came to call them, Luke records this in chapter 5. He came and he found the guys that were fishermen by trade. And what were they doing? They were sitting on the shore, what were they doing? washing and mending their nets? Why? Because they didn't catch anything. And he asked them, like, "Hey, did you catch anything out there?" Like, "Nope, we were out there all night." And then a very familiar exchange of, "Like, did you try putting the net on the other side of the boat?" Now, listen, I'm I'm not a fishing expert by any means. Certainly not in ancient uh, Israel, you know, Israel fishing tactics. But I have to wonder if they didn't think about trying the other side of the boat, okay? Like, I mean, it's not like we only fish on one side. It's like, why not throw it on the other? And I don't think Jesus is trying to be sarcastic and smart about it at all, but something in that first interaction. When Jesus said that to them, did you try putting the net on the other side of the boat? They're kind of like, I mean, we tried everything we knew how to do, but because you said that, I guess, guys, put the nets on the boat, we'll get back out there, we'll give it another shot, we we'll see what happens, and then, right, bam, right, all the fish came in. So you have to wonder, after that, even though they didn't recognize Jesus right away, which I find that's interesting as well. I don't know why that is. Maybe it was foggy that day. You know, for whatever reason, they didn't recognize him in the moment, but when he started talking this way, it started sounding really familiar, right? Once so he called them to respond, and they obeyed, and they, and they obeyed his word, then the outcome was more than they could ask or imagine. He was meeting them in what was a very normal moment, but identifying himself in that place. I think the reason I think that is significant is oftentimes we look for Jesus in the big moments and we miss out on the everyday. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is true for you, but I was thinking back to the big moments in my childhood. Like the things, the biggest memories that I have. Sure, I have a few memories where like we went to Disney World or something like that. I remember that activity that we did. Or maybe I remember a vacation that we took, a long road trip. And when we got there, like we stayed in this hotel. And I remember some of those things. But that was not the bulk of my life as a child. Those are not the memories that I think of when I think of my family. I do remember riding to school every day in my dad's Volkswagen Beetle, you know, and with the floorboard in the front passenger side sort of rusted out so you could see the highway through the floor, all right? I remember that. Probably kind of a traumatic memory, you know, if you think about it. I remember my mom's patience with all of the animals that I brought into our house as a kid, and I also remember when she lost her patience because of the same thing. I remember doing stupid things with my brother, like shooting arrows straight up in the air and trying to dodge them when they came down. (laughs) Please don't try that. (laughs) Uh, I remember when my sister was born and I was 12 and I was entrusted as the built in babysitter. All right? I remember those kinds of things. Those were the everyday kinds of things that I experienced. And if you think about that, that's the bulk. That's really the bulk of our life, is it not? Our everyday kinds of things. And that's why I love that Jesus came to them, not in a critical moment, right? Certainly, he was there in many critical moments before that, but this was in an everyday moment. When they were fishing, maybe they were tired, and they just wanted to, like, blow off a little steam. You know, I don't know. Maybe they didn't have any, any cash, and they needed to sell a few fish, you know, to kind of be ready for the week ahead. We don't know, but Jesus met them in that place. And for most of us, more of our life is experienced in the valleys of the mundane than on the peaks of the miraculous. It's just true. It's not a limit of Jesus' power. It's not, his power is not diminished in the regularity of your days any more than it would be diminished on a Tuesday as opposed to a Sunday. Do you believe that? Does that make a difference in the way that you live your life, that his power is the same in those big moments where you can look back with confidence and say, wow, just like we sang about, look what the Lord has done. Look what he did. Those are important things to celebrate. I would say even to memorialize them, to write them down to a journal, however way you want to do that so you can remember, but there's so much regular part of our life. And Jesus isn't sitting back in the corner. He's deeply invested in those as well. Jesus is not only working when the nets are overflowing. So what does he do when he's out there? He's, he's meeting them, first of all, where they are. He came to where the disciples were. I find that significant too. Jesus doesn't like, stay where he is and hope that you find your way to make some time for him. But He comes into the mundane, into the normal part of your day with you as well. And he has plenty to say. And he has power to work in that. You know, I don't have to go look for Jesus. He's already there. He's in the big moments, in the big troubles, and He's there in what feels like insignificant moments. You might be in a season right now that feels relatively insignificant. I don't know about you, but like I, f- I feel like there there's sort of like a, a cultural response to. Kind of coming back from being uh, locked down in culture, and then I think many of us kind of got overwhelmed with coming back to everything at once, and we sort of try to process that and just try to work through that. And, and for many of us, it's just kind of like I'm just trying to figure out what normal is. <laughs> I don't know what that is anymore. I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to get by today. Jesus is with you in that as well. It may feel normal to you. It may feel silly to you that you're having to kind of like figure out your schedule. And rearrange your, your family your structures again to figure out how things are going to work. It may feel silly to you that you're doing that, but Jesus is in there even in that detail. But note also, Jesus is standing on the shore while the disciples are out there working the nets. He sees them striving. I don't know how long he was on the shore, but they were out there all night. So imagine he was there for a while. He saw them out there. He saw what they were doing. I don't think Jesus was sitting there trying to like Look at them with judgment and be like, Look at those guys. How foolish they are. Like, if they just pay attention to me, if they just take a moment to stop and ask, I I would take care of that for them. He's not doing that at all. He's not judging them in any way. But he calls them out. What does he say? Have you found any fish? Have you found anything? Reminds me of other language that Jesus has, has said before, other questions he's asked. Like, did you find what you were looking for? Remember when they were in the garden? And Judas came and says, Who are you looking for? And they all fell over. I find that hilarious. And he's like, No, really, who are you looking for? And he provides he provides for them in the middle of their, their need as well. He tells them exactly where to find the fish. If you know what's striking to me is when they finally got to the shore, what's Jesus doing there, by the way, on the shore? Making breakfast. I'd love to have Jesus make me some breakfast. (laughs) You know? fry some bacon and eggs right there on the beach. He's making breakfast. Now, this is really interesting. It says that Jesus already had fish cooking on the coals. He already had fish. I don't know where he got them from. I don't want to say I'm reading too much into this, but I find it interesting that, and I find this to be true about Jesus is even in the moments where I have hesitated to hear his voice and respond in his way, he still meets my needs where I'm at. And he had those fish on the shore already ready to feed them with. But what does he say to them when they come on shore? He says, go and get the fish, right? He says, bring some of the the fish that you have just caught. Now, who gave him the fish? It was Jesus, right? Right? How well did their fishing efforts go? Not so great. So literally Jesus was the one that provided the fish, but he invited them into that moment to take part in the blessing of what he had done. And I've seen that to be true in him as well. That when he calls me to respond to him, He's calling out from love, not to shame me, not in a judgmental way, not in a sarcastic way to ask me, Mark, why are you striving so hard? Why are you working at you? You know you can't do anything. He never says it like that. It's always an invitation. It's always an invitation. Will I respond the way that he wants? Will I do what he has said to do? And if I do, I have the joy of participating in the blessing that comes out of that obedience. And other people partake of that as well. What's it's also interesting that Jesus reminds them with that dialogue across the water and how similar it was to the, the dialogue back in Luke, number, Luke chapter 5 that he found them before. He called them out before and he will do it again. Have you noticed that Jesus works? If you've walked with him for a while, he works in, in very predictable ways often. In very similar ways. He doesn't leave it to mystery. He's very consistent like that. But he just calls me to wait for his word and respond. Because when he speaks, his word changes everything. But not every day is going to be a day with a full net. And he wants to remind me that he's with me even in that. But this is the second thing this morning. The second thing that he wants me to believe about him in every season is that Jesus will continue to love me regardless of my zeal and in spite of my shame. Regardless of my zeal and in spite of my shame. I won't ask for a show of hands on this. But I wonder if last Sunday those of you that had to go to grandma's house for Easter lunch, okay? Some of you are like that. Uh, That happens around the holidays. Uh, I wonder how many of you have had a dialogue like this, which sounds really familiar. Usually, like, as you're pulling into the driveway, your parents say something like, you will smile and mind your manners. There will be a family picture, and you will smile and act like you love each other. You know, if you get served collard greens, you will eat every single one of them, and you will say thank you and tell your grandmother how good they were. Have you guys have had that conversation? Yes. We've all been in that. Some of the parents are like, yeah, I kind of say that. Like, we do that. Why? Because we care about pleasing. We like to please. We don't want to, like, uh, disturb the, the ambiance, the peace of the family by disappointing someone. So we try to act like it, like right? we put on a face. I think we can do that when we come to Jesus. Maybe some of you this morning, that's kind of how I felt this morning when my spouse said we're getting up and going to church. You're like, hmm. You're going to like it. Mm. We try to hide that, right? Go back to the passage here. Look at verse 7. So you got Peter. What does he do? When the disciple whom Jesus loved, I love that, that's John, Trying to highlight that he noticed that it was the Lord first. I love that. Middle verse seven When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Just to paint a picture of what just happened there. As soon as Peter realizes that's Jesus. All right, he's picking up what what Jesus is throwing down. What does he do? He grabs his clothes and jumps in the water. And I shared that earlier this week with my daughter when we were reading through the passage. And she was like, dad, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would he put on his nice clothes and jump in the water? Like, why wouldn't he just like get those when the boat got there? I was like, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know if maybe Peter thought there was gonna be hugs. And it's just always easier to hug someone when they got clothes on. And we can be honest. So I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was like, it's his favorite outfit, whatever. Puts on the cloak, jumps off. And I love that the Bible says they were only a short distance from the shore. It was still 100 yards. How many of you swam a football field this morning before you came into services, right? That's not something I could do. Jesus had to perform another miracle right there in the sea. You know, I wouldn't make it very far. Peter's like, you know what? You guys can just use the boat. I'm going to swim, I do kind of wonder who got there first, though, and who was out of breath. And Peter, in his zeal, his excitement for Jesus, jumps into the water. He can't get there fast enough. But notice what he sees when he gets on the shore. Verse 9, they got out on land, and they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Why am I highlighting that? You know, the charcoal fire and that specific detail is only mentioned two times in Scripture. Do you know when the other time was? It was the night that Jesus was on trial, and Peter was standing by the fire warming himself. And what's he saying in those moments around the fire? I don't know him. I never knew the man. In fact, he uses profanity. He's so upset and insistent about it. I do not know that man. Stop accusing me of that while he's warming himself around the charcoal fire. So please, you need to realize something. While the other disciples may have simply got out on the shore and sat down and they're kicking back and joking and laughing and they're eating, I think Peter's eyes are glued onto that fire. This brings up a very different experience for him in that moment. Then he continues on. Jesus says, bring me some of the fish. We talked about that. So they, they got the fish and they're serving him. And Jesus says, verse 12, have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came and he took bread and gave it to them. I think that even was probably a moment. It's the last time that Jesus was breaking bread with them. It was back at the Passover before his body was broken. He took bread, and gave it to them, and so with the fish, it was the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead, all right? So, but keep going. Now he's going to have a private conversation with Peter in verse 15. When they'd finished, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. So he said to him a third time. And you got to wonder if that third time didn't hit just a little different, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You know what's so beautiful about that? It'd be easy to just kind of skim over that. And to think that this is just a conversation about Jesus telling Peter what his assignment will be, and we'll get to that part of it in a second, but you need to don't miss the undertones and the emotion and that moment that's very personal to Peter in that where he had stood there and outright denied the Lord in his moment where he was put on trial and and, and killed. Like he had said, I'll have nothing to do with him, which is super, super ironic and super shameful for him because it wasn't but just a few days before where he said, I will never leave you. All the rest of these guys here, they'll forsake you, but it will not be me. And yet he was the one that was standing beside the charcoal fire. He was the one that was denying the Lord. But notice how Jesus receives Peter. Doesn't receive him like we think our grandmother's going to receive us when we don't smile and don't dress appropriately, don't like her collard greens. He asks him a question. And I don't think it's the question maybe that Peter expected. He's like, Peter, do you love me? I know you're you're zealous for me. I can see your excitement. You're still dripping with excitement, literally. But do you love me? Notice he didn't say, Peter, are you going to let me down again? Peter... Are you going to fail me again? I can't stand failure. we got important things to do. I need you to be on my side. He doesn't say any of that. He asks him what? Do you love me? What well, Jesus' greatest desire for Peter and his greatest desire for us is something that he said way back in John chapter 15, which you looked at many weeks ago. It says in verse nine, as the Father has loved me, that's Jesus speaking, so have I loved you. And then he says these three words, abide in my love. I guess that's four words. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Live as if I have made a difference in your life because of my love, not because I'm easy to work for, not because you want to impress me. Not because you're obligated, because you are loved. Do you you believe above all else that your life can demonstrate that you live as someone who is fundamentally, without restraint, loved by God? Do you live as someone that is loved? Why is it so hard for us to abide in that reality? And we carry on the shame. And we walk around embarrassed because of our failures. And we feel that when we come to the Lord, it's like coming to someone else who's going to look at us and make a snap judgment. When Jesus is like, is it finished or is it not finished in your life? Did I not put that to death already on the cross? Did I not raise again so that you don't have to walk around in the burden of shame? Do you love me like I love you? Why is it so hard to do that? This is a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He was a a, a Christian thought leader back in the 60s. But he said this, We do not need to bear our guilt, nor do we even have to merit the merit of Christ. He does it all. So in one way, Christianity is the easiest religion in the world. But now we can turn that over because it's actually the hardest in the world for the same reason. The heart of the rebellion of Satan and man was the desire to be autonomous. And accepting the Christian faith robs us not of our existence, not of our worth, but it robs us of being completely autonomous. It is hard for you and I to live as if Jesus has made a difference, to live in light of the love that he gives because we, on some level, want to kind of make it on our own. We want to figure it out. We want to prove it to him retroactively that his sacrifice was worth it, that it was enough, right? Do you you sense that? Do you feel that way when you approach Jesus? Jesus wants you to experience the freedom that is yours, that you can lay down your shame, that in Jesus Christ, no matter what you were, no matter what you will be, all of those things were settled at the cross. And then when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees you dressed in what Jesus has done, and it is pleasing to him. There's nothing that you can and I can strive to do to change that in any reality. And that's what Jesus is trying to affirm to Peter in this passage. He's like, I know you're going to fail. I know that. But do you love me? Do you understand the love that I have for you? And is that enough? Do you believe that you are loved this morning? Jesus doesn't want you just to reflect on on his love for you when we think about Good Friday and we think about the pain of the cross. What you need to understand is that love started way before then, right? God created people in his image to know him. And even though we brought sin into the mix, and disturbed that relationship, God did not settle with that. Right On the very day, on the very day that sin entered into the world, God proclaimed that he was sending someone that would crush sin and death forever. It's one of the greatest gifts that Jesus wants you and me to believe and to continue to live in is that we are wholly and completely loved because of what Jesus did. And that changes my confidence. That changes my peace like we talked about last week. That changes my expectation of what Jesus can do with me. Because if I'm just looking at what I bring to the table, it's nothing more than what those disciples brought to that night of fishing. It's a lot of net casting. Hoping something gets pulled up that I can point to and say, I did that. When Jesus is looking at me and saying, leave the nets behind get out of the boat and let me give you breakfast. Let me feed you. Let me tell you who you are to me because you're going to need to remember that every single day of your life. And you're going to be tempted to doubt that every single day of your life. And you're going to look for that love or that validation in so many other places. But even as you strive in that, I'm going to gently call you back to who you are and how I see you. You know what destroys shame? It's believing that Jesus' death on my behalf was enough. He wants us to walk in that, but this is the last thing this morning. As we continue to believe, as we abide in that, that Jesus will continue to call me to boldly lead and to humbly follow to boldly lead and to humbly follow. Go back to what Jesus was saying in response to Peter there. As he was saying, do you love me? And he said, yes. Every time he responded with something very similar, he said, tend my sheep, keep my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Why is he, what's he talking to him about? Right? He's talking to him about what he's gonna be doing. Peter, you're no longer... A fisherman. All right, when I called you before, I told you in that moment, you're no longer going to be, be about fishing for fish, that now you're called to administer fishing for men. And what you bring in as you do that is what I keep. But then he sobers him up a little bit too. Continue reading in verse 18 after he says that. It says, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. What Jesus said there was basically describing, hey Peter, at some point, as you do these things, as you feed, as you lead Point people to what I have said and done. In your life, there's going to be, you're going to pay for that. It's going to be a costly thing. That's exactly what happened to Peter. He and along with the disciple, other disciples were martyred. Church tradition holds that he was crucified upside down because he did not want to be in the same direction as his Savior had been crucified. you think about that and you're like, wow, that's not really much of a pep talk, Jesus. After you just made this statement about how loved I am in the same breath, you're like, oh, and by the way, it's going to cost you everything to do this. But I'm thankful in that moment that Jesus didn't stop the conversation there. And he didn't say something like, get out there, sport, and give it your best shot. Smack him on the backside and send him in the game. It's going to be hard. It's going to cost you everything you got. I'm out of here. And he stops with something that should sound very, very familiar because it's what he started with. Look at verse 19. And after saying this, he said to him, what? Follow me. Follow me. Why follow me? Jesus is trying to make a point. that As we continue to imbibe in the things that he claims about himself and what he calls us to do as we live in the in light of his love. And that does make a real difference in our life. It doesn't stop my need for him. Just like it didn't stop the disciples' need for him just because he was resurrected. He came back to them in that mundane time in that that moment that seems insignificant to remind them of the fact that you're gonna need me every single day. And he says, follow me. What does it look like to follow? I have kind of a humorous illustration of this. I used to work with our students here at the church for many years. And one thing that we would do every fall was take a fall retreat up to the mountains. And part of that weekend retreat was to always take a hike up through the woods, up the mountain to this rock where everyone could look out. I say it's humorous because every year we would go, and I think maybe, I don't know, maybe one other group than us probably hiked that trail every year. So, and they didn't mark it. The only way you had to know how to get there is you had to have gone there before. And so we would go out there to hike. It'd be like me and like a few leaders and like a line of students behind me. And we'd be hiking up the mountain. And inevitably, it was usually always a middle school boy or two or three that did this. They would get tired of walking in the line behind the leader of the line, usually me. And so they would help themselves to run ahead up the path. And I, I'm watching them as a leader should, right? And they're going ahead and I see them kind of go around this turn and then they're pointing over here and they're going this way and I see their little heads over there and then I see them all of a sudden stop. It was always, I just let it happen because it was humorous to watch. They would always stop in the middle of the trail because they'd always inevitably found a place where the leaves had just like dumped right there in the middle of the woods and you couldn't see the trail and there was no marks and they're just standing there looking around like this. And you see them talking to each other, and finally they just decide to stand still, like in shame. (laughs) And we would catch up to them, and you know what they would do? They'd get in line behind me, and then we'd start walking. And it was great because he'd be walking and I'd be like, hey, look out for this slippery rock. And the kid behind me would be like, hey, he said look out for the rock. And this guy behind me would be like, look out for the rock. And they'd pass it down the line. and be like, oh, step over this root, Step over the root," And they'd pass it down the line. They would not go past me anymore. Why? Because they didn't know the way. When I am following, I don't know the next mile. I only know the next step because I'm looking at the guy that's in front of me. When Jesus says, to follow me. It's not a theoretical exercise where I try to aspire to follow Jesus. I will model my life after Jesus. That's a part of it, modeling. But it's also being obedient to what he's saying. It's being ready to respond and also simultaneously being okay that I don't know what the next three decisions are supposed to be. I only know what he's saying today. How do we carry forward and believe like Jesus makes a difference? By following Jesus. I love that's where he started in the book of John, and that's where he's ending. It's not more complicated than that. And yet we've made it so. It's what it means to be a bold leader. A bold leader on a bold mission. To make disciples. When you and I, if we're honest, we don't really feel like we're all that there yet, right? Who am I to make a disciple? What do I know? You might be the kid that's just ahead of me. You at least have one step ahead, right? Let me ask you this morning as you reflect on Jesus meeting us in the miraculous and the mundane. Jesus wanting me to remember and to live in light of his love. That's unchanging in exciting seasons and in very normal ones. And that the remembering that Jesus just he invites me to follow him. That's how I lead bravely. That's how I'm on mission is by doing what he's doing. Let me ask you, are you still out in the boat? Are you still out in the boat? Is it time to put the net down and row into the shore and sit with Jesus for a minute and let him tell you who you are and listen as he tells you how he wants you to respond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, that's in the mountaintop moments, and it's in the very mundane moments. God, you are speaking. You are working. I pray we would not lose heart, God, when it seems like you're not moving as fast as we want you to or in the way that we think you should. And we would just trust that you know where the destination is. You know what you are making us into. As we abide with you, walking hand in hand, God, can we follow step by step? We trust you as you lead us, as you died for us, you gave us freedom, and I pray we would live like that has made a difference in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.